Hello and welcome to Frankly Speaking with Lynn Franks and Friends. I'm Lynn Franks, your host, and this week I sat down to an incredible conversation with my friend Sophia Swire, social entrepreneur, founder of many social initiatives, including the Future Brilliance Afghan charity and her latest project, JEDI, her global women's investment fund. We discuss using education as a powerful tool for creating positive and radical change for good in the world. We also talk about how investing in women's businesses will save the world and the climate and Sophia's passion for impact and building a sustainable livelihood for others. Today I'm with a very good friend of mine. I'm so pleased that she's found time to come onto my podcast. Sophia Swire, I've been asking you for months. You are so busy. You are traveling all the time. And I've managed to catch you on a very brief visit to the UK. How many countries have you been in in the last 12 months? Do you even know? I know. I haven't counted quite a few. And I've been to, most recently, I've been in Pakistan, the Emirates, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, Saudi Arabia for the first time, which was really interesting. And I've also been in the US, a fair amount, and France, and and Germany, Austria, the Czech Republic. That's just in the, that's since Christmas. That's unbelievable. And you were at <laughs> COP, talking at COP, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. And you, I, I can't believe it. I am connected with you on WhatsApp through various groups as well as directly. And when I just look at the pictures that you put through on WhatsApp and where you are and what's going on, I can't believe it. Anyway, let's start at the beginning. So we've known each other. We were just working it out, probably not far off 30 years. But you're, tell me how you all started, because your career started in the city. Do you want to give us a little bit of history about how you started there? Because, of course, you're ending up now. We'll talk about it later in the financial world again. But the extraordinary career that you have had. It's a book. It's a film. I mean, I can see some, somebody beautiful playing you in a movie at one time or another. So how did it all start? Well, it started off, as you as you rightly said, in the city. And the reason I chose to go into the city was because I uh, was supposed to be going into the art world, actually. I did history of art at university, but my brother and my father were both made board directors at Sotheby's, and neither of them had a background in art. And I was so annoyed that they'd been sort of given a shoe-in position into the, that role with no no track record in that, no no real interest in it, I thought at the time, that I, I thought I would flick two fingers at them and say, I'm going, I'm going to do the guy's job. You're going to do the girl's job and I'm going to do the guy's job. I'm going into the city. And they said, you can't, you're a girl. You can't go into finance. No one will have you. And so I got myself a job with the biggest investment bank at the time in Britain, which was Clanmore Benson, uh, which was subsequently bought by Deutsche Bank. And I spent three years in the city doing institutional equity analysis initially and then sales at Europe to Europe. Because of my background and foundation in, in history of art, I spoke fluent Italian, fluent Spanish and pretty good French at the time. So uh, the natural place for me was Europe. And, and I, I, for the first couple of years, I had a ball. And then what attracted you to start going to Asia? To, and, and where did you first start going to? Because you then got involved, very deeply involved in um, producing products, prim- primarily uh, pashmina scarves and shawls at the beginning, and then raising funds to start schools for girls in the region, which is it's just so amazing thinking how long ago that was. That was a long time ago. Well, well that, that sort of change of direction really started on uh, black 
Black Friday and then we had Black Friday and Black Monday. You may remember, I think it was October 1987, a long time ago. And after that, the stock market crashed. It was the biggest stock market crash of all time. And I was one of only three individuals on a dealing floor of 500 men, basically, who, who bothered to make it over the fallen plane trees in Belgrade Square into the into the tube and then into the city. Everyone else had wisely stayed home. <laughs> that sounds like you. <laughs> yes, exactly. I was literally clambering over these enormous tree trunks. And after that, it was a very different place, the city. Before that, it was all sort of yuppie time. You know, we would go out for champagne lunches and I'd go away for long weekends and skiing in Verbier. We would dance all night. And, you know, it, it was it was it was the golden age of the yuppies. And then after Black Monday and the stock market crash, it was it was a very different place. There were no more long lunches and the parties had stopped. That's right. It was it, it, it was uh, the Wolf of Wall Street time, and you couldn't really be seen away from your desk from seven in the morning until seven at night. And it became a brutally competitive and, and unpleasant place to work. And one day, my boss came to me and said, I'm taking all your top clients. And I said, you can't do that. He said, I could do whatever I want. I'm your boss. And he said, it's a dog-eat-dog world, each man for himself. And I found myself fighting tooth and nail for something that I didn't believe in. And I, I had a sort of a presence on my shoulder tweeting into my ear saying you should use your fight for something that you actually believe in, that you feel has, has some positive impact. So before the end of that argument, I had decided that I was going to resign and move to the Hindu Kush and become an aid worker or a war journalist. And uh, with the Hindu Kush and Peshawar at the time, because, because it had the highest concentration of aid workers and war journalists, a bit like Kabul did in the, in the last you know, 20 years. It was, at the time, it was Peshawar which was the capital of the Northwest Frontier province. And it's a long story, as you say, maybe one day worthy of a, of a Netflix series. And pretty dangerous for a, for a young, blonde English girl, even then, wasn't it, at that point? In the Hindu Kush, yeah. I mean, it was, it was, I don't know how dangerous it was. It was, um, I mean, for somebody who was relatively naive and not prepared, it was definitely a surprise. Yes, I mean, you having got through the jungle of working in the city at the, in the 80s, and then you went off to, yes, a very far land. Wearing my little shouldered suit, you know, totally inappropriately dressed. And, you know, <laughs> not, so anyway, a long story that we won't go into now, but one day I will, no doubt. I ended up in Chitral, which is a very beautiful landlocked principality. It was independent until 1969, so it has its own language, its own culture, and, and I'm still very, very close to the, to the royal family there. And we set up at the request of the local deputy commissioner, Major Javid Majid, who, by the way, is joining the board of Future Brilliance Pakistan. So it comes, it comes full circle there as well. Uh, Major Javid Majid, who was the deputy commissioner at the time, had, had decided that he wanted to set up a school because he had a couple of children who he didn't want to send what they used to call down country. He wanted to educate them locally. And there was very, very high uh, it, rates of illiteracy for both men and women in the region, they only had government schools with 100 children per class. And this was in Pakistan? Pakistan, right up on the Afghan border. So the, the range of literacy for women was less than 3%. It was like 2.8%, I think. And it had one of the highest infant and maternal mortality rates in the world when I arrived on my 25th birthday. And so he tapped me on the shoulder for reasons that I won't go into now, but I will one day, and said, you look like the kind of girl I need to help me set up a school. And so I thought it was kismet. I thought it was heaven sent. And so I said, okay, what do you need? So he said, I need you to bring out some of your friends from university and, you know, some of your other fellow English people. And I need you to bring out books and equipment. 
So I went for a short walk in the Hindu Kush after that first meeting with, with the people that I happened to, to be traveling with. And then worked until Christmas, picked up my bonus, walked into the chairman's office and said, I'm resigning. He said, you're out of your mind. I'm firing everyone else. I'm not firing you. What, what, why are you leaving? I said, I'm going off to help set up a school in the Hindu Kush. He said, you are really out of your mind. You know, this is, these, these are the years that you should be spending having fun and, you know, finding a suitable husband or something like that. Uh, as uh, in those days, you could say what you wanted, I guess, maybe not anymore. Thank God. And so, so I said, no, I've made up my mind. And I took the check, cashed it and went and bought 300 kilos of school books and equipment, persuaded my best friend from university and my first cousin to join me. And another girl who was a film producer out of Paris had gone on ahead. And there was another girl out there already called Nikki, Nikki and, and Juliet. And they, when I arrived, there must have been around 75 children already. And they'd taken over the, the guest house of the deputy commissioner, which had been built by the British, an old, beautiful old white uh, painted wooden colonial, yeah, on, on a rocky outcrop with the most staggering view of a mountain called Tirichmir that is so beautiful that, that the Alexandrian soldiers, the Macedonian soldiers of Alexander the Great, thought they'd died and gone to heaven when they arrived in Chitral. They literally, they just didn't want to leave. And this, this, they, they, mis- they mistook this mountain for the thigh of Dionysius and they drank, they drank from the vine because, you know, grapes grow widely there. And it's the most astonishingly magical place. It was the inspiration for Rudyard Kipling's book, A Man Who Would Be King. It was based on, on that valley. And so I had the happiest year of my life to date and the most romantic in many ways, teaching a bunch of 10 year old English and, and maths and geography and science and Islamiat. I had to learn Islamiat and, and, and teach them Islamiat too. And because I wasn't a trained teacher, I also taught them other things that I felt they needed to know, like animal conservation and basic environmental you know, information, which it wasn't really fashionable at the time, but there was already widespread deforestation. And, and you could see the, the results of that was additional flash flooding. And there were snow leopard families that lived there and they were being shot by the farmers because the snow leopards were attacking their goats and, and the farmers didn't realize that they were endangered. So we had a, uh, I had a campaign to basically educate the, the children and the children went back and told their parents. And, you know, when I went back a few years later, there were world wildlife hosts all over town and the, that they were properly taken care of. The snow leopards are now flourishing there and, um, you know, they were planting trees left, right and center. So it's amazing. And it's such a lesson to me. And it was such a lesson really how transformational education is as a as a tool as a weapon for for positive change in the world. The literacy rate, admittedly, over the course of a generation, has gone from two point eight percent for women. It's now over forty percent, and it's it's partly due to the school. The other and is the school is also, still running now. Yeah, the school has seven hundred uh, children, more than seven hundred children. It, wow! It's 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 called the Eton College of the Hindu Kush. It's it has had a female head teacher from the very beginning, English. English person and uh, Kerry Schofield is currently the headmistress and she maintains a very high level of education and discipline and so on. So for most people, this achievement alone would be enough for somebody in their life is that you created this school out of nothing and is now doing what 700 young people and made changes in environment and then that's extraordinary. Now how did you get into the Pashmina business from that? 
first of all, like all things in life, you know, it's not just me. It's um, a group of people. And I well, was, you're always brilliant was, at putting groups of people together. I've never known anybody so good at attracting mostly, well, I'm sure they're also amazing men, but the women I've met that you pull in your life and we're all there to love and support you because we trust you and believe in you so much. We know whatever you're doing is for the greater good and, and we're all there and supporting you every step of the way. It's amazing the women you've got in your life all over the world, actually, all over. I'm, I'm very blessed, very, very, very blessed with the, with the amazingly talented, brilliantly driven women who are, who are, you know, I stand on the shoulders of giants, as they say. One could say that. One could also say that you're a leader of leaders. I look at it. <laughs> but anyway, either way round, <laughs> it's very impressive. So you, yes, sorry. So I was asking you about, because that's when we first met. We met at Sami Ling, Buddhist a monastery in Glasgow, very strange place for it to be, because there was a little conference there about how to publicise social enterprise, really. And that's when we first met in the early and 90s. Charities. It was a, yes, and charities, and it was like early 90s. And by that time, you had st- you'd been importing pashminas. You were the first person to bring in those beautiful pashmina shawls from the region, weren't you? Yeah, so so I don't know how much detail you want me to go into, but I can I can give you. Well, some we've got a few hours. That <laughs> take us <laughs> Okay, all right. So basically, when I left Chitral, I met a couple of Pakistani pop singers with Imran Khan, who's now the prime minister. They they were they were the Donny and Marie Osmond of Pakistan at the time. They were called Nazir Zohair Hassan, and they sang like angels. And the very first record that they ever released sold sixty million copies, such as the size of the South Asian market. They were absolutely beautiful and adorable and sweet. And they came to me at, 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 at the dinner that Imran was hosting his mother's cowl. And they worried about, the, and they want to do something about it. You know, you obviously understand something about charities. Would you ever consider helping us found a charity called Battle Against Narcotics out here? So I did. And, and for six months, I worked, I volunteered at the Pakistan Narcotic Control Board well, as the only the foreign national <laughs> running around at, at, at it was quite something, and, and and you can imagine that the powers that be at the time were very concerned that there was this sort of English woman running around doing the work of the Minister of Narcotics, actually, who was supposed to be drafting. Because I assume opium was a very large part of their sort of underground economy, wasn't it, in that region? It was underground and, and to a large extent overground. And what I discovered that was that at the time, the major political players, many of them, were being funded by drugs money. So... After a while, I was very grateful, very decided that they, that they didn't want me there at all. Because sure you, you didn't get murdered, my God. Well, they told me that they, that they were going to arrest me and throw me in jail if, if I didn't uh, leave within 24 hours. So I left <laughs> and came back to the UK feeling a bit hurt. And, and I didn't know what the hell I was going to do with my life. And I met the editor for South Asia for BBC World Service, who said he thought I'd, I'd make a good radio a journalist. So he said, what do you know about? I said, drugs and education. So the first two pieces that went out, went out on that. And then, and then, I, and then they trained me up. I got brought into Bush House and, and they trained me up to do uh, voice, you know, to do proper voice uh, reporting. And apparently the very first pieces that went out, the entire of Bush House was doubled over in hysterical laughter because they said that I sounded like a 1930s schoolmistress and they hadn't heard a voice like mine in, in a decade. And that comes from and the BBC World Service. They can yeah. talk. <laughs> yes. But anyway, they got lots of approving letters from India saying, finally, someone we can understand. So, but anyway, so that, that 
took me off back into the Hindu Kush when there was a change of government. I did radio and then television and, and I started doing documentaries at the time. And um, also at that same dinner party with Imran were the great and the good from India. So there were a number of Indian princes and princesses and, and Rekha, who was the leading Indian movie star at the time, and Kabir Bedi, the, the baddie in Octopussy, all these super cool, groovy Indian movie Bollywood stars. And they were all wearing these incredibly fine shawls. And I, I said to one of them, I think it was Rekha, I said, you know, what is that? I've never seen anything like that. She said, oh, it's a pashmina, darling. I can get you one. It's no problem. I said, well, how much does it cost? And she said, oh, just about $1,000. I can get it for you. I said, no, no, it's okay. Thank you. You know, on my, on my Journalist teaching salary. salary. <laughs> yeah, the time, I know it's good because I was still in trial at the time, but teaching. Yeah. So I was like, like, you know, $20 a month or something. I said, thank you, but no thanks. Anyway. Fast forward to the following summer, and I was attending a ball in the, at, at a chateau in the south of France. And I see Imran sitting there with a very beautiful Pakistani-looking princessy type female. And I dance up to both of them and start talking to them both in Urdu. I don't speak very good Urdu, but I, I spoke enough to, to amuse them. And the pretty girl roared with laughter and said, I'm not Pakistani, I'm Nepalese. And her name was Renu, and we remained great friends all these years and she said you know what are you doing in a couple of months my sister's getting married and it's like a, a royal Nepalese wedding and you must come so I said I'm in and so I flew to Nepal and, and I happened to be talking about these Pashmina shawls uh, because of Imran I guess he was the common denominator and she said they're not a thousand dollars they're made by my friends you know I know the workshop and it's down the road and you know I'll take you there tomorrow so she took me and I was the first Western woman to walk through the door. And they, it, it, it wasn't the same Pashmina that had been popularized by the Mughal Emperor Akbar back in the sort of 16th century. It was a Westernized version that had been produced by this Nepalese businessman who was a silk trader and wanted to get rid of his extra excess silk. So he combined silk with the local Pashmina Kashmir. Pash, Pashmina is the Asian word for, for Kashmir. It's still used actually. And, 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 and I, they were lovely and delicious. And so I loaded up my suitcase, brought them back, went back to Nepal a few times, you know, doing various things, reports for the BBC World Service and so on. And then eventually I get a call from Lucinda Chambers, who was the director of British Vogue at the time, saying, can I use your shawls on a, in a five-page photo shoot with Christy Tellington and Kate Moss? I, I'd see them on all, all the beautiful girl, fashionable girls in London and, and uh, you know, can, can I use them in my fashion shoot? I said, yeah, why not? And I, I know I make it sound all very easy and like it happened to me. It wasn't quite that. It wasn't quite that way. But no, anyway. I, I know. I remember <laughs> some of it at least. <laughs> I was lugging heavy suitcases around the world and doing my back in half the time. But anyway, it all sounds very easy. But so, so I, I dyed up various pashminas in Buddhist maroon colors because I thought, well, if she's going to do a fashion shoot in um, Nepal, she's going to need, you know, burnt umbers and ochres and Buddhist maroons and deep reds. And sure enough, I was bang on. When I arrived, she went, oh my God, this is perfect. And so she basically, my, my brand was launched on the shoulders of the biggest supermodels of the era. In the, in the top fashion magazine of the era. In, in the world. Styled by the best fashion editor of that particular time, Miss Cinder Chambers. How brilliant. And shot by Arthur Elgort, the greatest fashion photographer of the time. So, yes, I, let's just say I'm very blessed. But yes. I sometimes feel that, that, that when 
luck like that happens to me, it's because I'm really focused on, on other things, you know. So at the time, I had already started raising money for the schools, for the original school that I had helped to set up in Chitral Sayuj, which is now known as Langlands College. But also in 1990, I'd met some of the Afghan royal family at another wedding, and they had come up to me and asked me if I would help them keep the 10 top schools for Afghan refugees open. They were closing because USAID had terminated funding for the whole Afghan war effort. You'll remember Charlie Wilson's war. Congress basically severed funding overnight, which is how Osama bin Laden ended up in setting up all these madrasas in Pakistan because there was no money coming from the US for, for the proper schools. So anyway, so, so, so these amazingly beautiful ladies said to me, could I help them keep these schools open? So I said, of course, yes. And then I started launching events, doing fundraising events. And then I had the, with the Pashminas, I gave 10% of proceeds to fund the schools. And so, yeah, I sometimes believe that if you're very focused on, on the good, that good things happen, you know, providence intervenes and somehow makes you safe. That's my theory anyway. It remains to be seen. Well, it's um, worked for it, you so far because you've been in some of the most dangerous places in the world and you have achieved so many extraordinary things. So the Pashmina business became huge, didn't it? That is when we met and it became the fashion. Obviously, other people started bringing in Pashminas, but you always had, you were always out there first and they were in all the top stores and suddenly you were in the right trade, which is amazing. Yes, I was. And I, I didn't, I can't say, I mean, it came very easily, mainly because I guess I stumbled across and also helped weave a story around a product. Yes, literally weave. Yeah. And and then, I, you know, wherever I was in the world, I would go to the top local magazine and the top local store and I'd walk away a week later with guaranteed coverage and guaranteed position in the top local store. So that was how I did it. And, and obviously I had no training in fashion, but having had a training in history of art, a thorough training for a different life that I was supposed to lead, I did have a very strong sense of colour and texture and and you know, photography and fashion and branding, it came very naturally. And having, you know, had that grounding in the city, I also was a pretty good salesperson. So I, I had, I guess, the raw material to, to build a fashion um, brand without even really realising it. And uh, and then I was also making films as well back in the 90s. So so the, 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 the sort of storytelling grew into producing documentaries. So in the 90s, I was um, making films about Pakistan and I made it pretty powerful film for Channel 4 about partition. And uh, we filmed Elephant Polo for Transworld Sports in uh, with an Oscar-nominated cameraman, I remember, in Nepal. So I, I had a whale of a time. And uh, when people say to me, why do you never get married? And I, I think it's because You had I no time. Have... How would you have ever had time to get married? <laughs> Possibly. Well, I, you know, I would have done if, um, if I, I didn't. It'd be very hard to meet a man that would be up to your standard. Very, I'm not saying that you're, you have the high standards, but I wouldn't. I, I suppose there's somebody out there, but I don't want to be too depressing. I haven't depressing. given up hope, Lynn. I have no, 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 still... no, of course not. I sounded so, that was really depressing. But, you know, to have somebody that can keep up with you will be something. That's all I can say. There's lovely men out there to have nice holidays with. I'm sure of that. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, let's move on. So the, the, the Pashmina business, not only yours, but the whole industry got bigger and bigger. And unfortunately, all fashion, the bubble slightly burst. And then you were moving on to new things. And you then got involved with jewellery and Rory Stewart. Do you want to explain about Blue Mountain and Turquoise Mountain? Uh, uh, Turquoise Mountain, Mountain yeah. So, so, so because I had built the Pashmina boom and because I had had a grounding in the city and I used to trade stocks, I had a very sort of deep sense of, of the cycle of things. So I, instead of waiting for the bubble to burst, as I knew it would, I actually transferred the brand into knitwear, cashmere knitwear. 
And it was the first fashion cashmere label that was that was producing like things like the things I'm wearing now, basically cashmere zippies. You know, Juicy Couture at the time didn't exist. And so and then I, I teamed up with the Andy Warhol Foundation, again, with the history of art background. I went to New York and met the Andy Warhol Foundation and produced limited edition prints of Warhols that. on cashmere. Oh, my God. Where are they? They're collector's pieces now. They are. And, and they, they immediately went into the front window of the um, Lehman Marcus and Bergdorf. They were in the Bergdorf oh, Goodman like Christmas well, if Castle. Find an old, if you've ever found one somewhere in your drawers, it's a large size. Please put my name on it. How I, amazing. I do. I do. The, the, best, the best one was the Marilyn Monroe one, which I had to get, I had to get a, 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 a contract with both the Warhol Foundation and with the Marilyn Monroe legacy for the right to use it. And I worked with Nadia Swarovski to produce Glueback Swarovski crystal prints. They were quite, so I had this giant oh, Campbell soup in glittering crystals on black cashmere. Oh my it God. was quite something. Oh. Anyway, so, so at a certain point, the rag trade got to me. It started doing me in because I was shooting off to the Hindu Kush and elsewhere to do quite hardcore documentary filmmaking. And then coming home, brushing my hair, putting on my makeup, putting on stiletto heels and sitting... In a booth at London Fashion Week. London Fashion Week <laughs> with these women being incredibly rude and, and yes. superficial and supercilious. Awful. And I just thought, you know, this is just ridiculous. So I'd slightly lost interest in, in the whole uh, thing. And when in 2007... I was approached by Rory Stewart, who was with, who was the founder, along with Prince Charles and Hamid Karzai of the Turquoise Mountain Foundation. He said to me that Peter Juvenal, who's very sadly right now la- languishing in jail in, in, in Kabul, arrested by the Taliban, not charged with anything, but just under, under arrest in a very damp, cold cell. My old friend, Peter Juvenal, who was a brilliant cameraman. He was John Simpson's cameraman when they walked in to Kabul the day the Soviets left, famously in 1980, or was it 1989, I think. And uh, so Peter had been pulling the ear of Rory saying if he wanted to set up a jewellery school, there was only one person on the planet who could do it, and that apparently was me. So Rory, when I met him, said, you're coming back to Kabul with me. And I said, no, I'm not. He said, yes, you are. Anyway, Rory's even more persuasive than I am. And so I... I Is he single? <laughs> He'd be a good person for you to marry. <laughs> no, no. He's very, very happily with his beautiful, powerful, amazing, elegant, brilliant wife, Shoshana. And they're very well suited and they have children and it's okay, all perfect. Yeah, all right. It's just a thought. <laughs> but it'll be that kind of man, courageous, brave, pioneer sort of person. Yes. Anyway, not him though. <laughs> Not him, but but he is very bright and, and very impressive and, and probably one of the most intelligent humans I've ever ever had the good fortune to interact with and certainly the most eloquent and the most most you know articulate. He's brilliant. Utterly, utterly brilliant. So I arrived in the coldest winter on record in January two thousand and eight into this mud wall fortress, which is called the Fortress of the Scorpions, because in winter the scorpions hibernate in the mud wall architecture in the walls and in the roofs and in spring when they come out of hibernation they drop into your bed so that's why i moved from the fashion industry from sort of you know catwalks in in paris and new york to uh, a 19th century mud wall fortress surrounded by a bunch of unbelievably bright oxbridge graduates who were arguing over breakfast over translations of Rumi. oh it was magical and of course I fell madly in love and 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 stayed out there for much longer than the three months I had promised Rory and so I put my fashion business on hold where it where it remains in cotton wool ever since and and started I launched the jewelry school and because I'd had a background in fashion and branding and so on 
I brought Pippa Smallite, who's very well-known and highly respected. Fantastic. Just my aesthetic. I love, absolutely love this sort of organic qualities and she's got a very strong sustainability part to her business. So I brought her out in June. I didn't know you took her out because I've seen her work in her shop in Notting Hill. I didn't realise that she'd got into Afghanistan through you. That's I should have done. I should have worked it out. <laughs> so all roads lead back to you. Hopefully not. <laughs> um, and um, anyway, so so she created this beautiful collection, and then she she launched it with some some of my help in London and in Paris that that autumn, and then I. I decided I, it was time for me to come home because I had a business to run and a life to lead. And I was concerned that I was now in my early 40s and I should be looking for that mythical man on, on, the, on the shining white knight on his horse and so it on. It doesn't exist. Not, not, anyway, yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and we are the, we are the man on the shiny, but we are our own heroes. So, so basically. You came home. I, I, no, I wrote a five point business plan for the whole sector, you know, oh. because I realized that this was something that could create jobs for thousands, hundreds of thousands of people if it was properly formalized and properly rather properly, you know, supported by the international community. So I wrote a, a business plan for the sector, called together the greatest sort of decision makers at the time in, in Kabul, which was the head of ISAF, a number of generals, the head of JICA, the Japanese aid organization, but the, the head of USAID's small and medium enterprise development business section, GIZ, the German aid group, DFID, Department for Genetic Development, and then, you know, presented this plan and said, I'm out of here. You know, one of you, please take it on because this is a sector that really needs developing. And it's particularly interesting because the gemstones are distributed on the Afghan-Pakistan border in areas that are prone to radicalization because there's no other alternative source of employ other than joining the Taliban or growing poppies and obviously back into the heroin opium trade and because obviously the the deposits which are lapis and and tourmalines and uh, sapphires and and emeralds are generally in quite remote areas and very often very barren and there isn't really much else going on so 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 basically USAID said okay can we take your plan and put our name at the top of it and I said yes of course and they said um will you please run it and I said no 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 I'm going back to, to, to England and they said, we'll, we'll give you unlimited support and everything you need, but we, you're the person, you have to do this. So I rang home, said, sorry, I'm not coming back just yet. And um, ended up doing you know, years of work, basically, in the sector, working ultimately with the Ministry of Mines and Petroleum as senior advisor to the minister on gemstones and artisanal mining funded by the World Bank and various different other things and wrote the national gemstone strategy, national policy, contributed to changes in the law to try to enfranchise disenfranchised miners who, in many other countries, artisanal mining is legalized. It's been formalized because it's actually not possible to invite foreign investment into the sector in places where the deposits are so scattered, it it just doesn't work. So we trained a number of people. and And then in 2012, I was funded by the US Department of Defense to set up my second nonprofit, Future Brilliance, and we launched a skills enhancement training program. So we took graduates of the school at Turquoise Mountain, graduates of GIZ and all these other programs that had popped up, and we took them to Jaipur for six months of skills enhancement training. We brought in top jewelers, award-winning jewelers from New York and from the UK, and we gave them you know, a first-class foundation in, in market-focused, high-quality manufacturing 
standards and we also gave them placements in plasma in the or internships in the local top uh, manufacturing units so that they they had to put in a good eight hour working day and and um, not bunk off for cigarette breaks and and all the other reasons that they would normally and bunk off. And was that when they, you got them involved in learning technology as well, or was that a bit later? No, it was that, because obviously we realised that for them to, to have a flourishing business, they needed to be able to master e-commerce. And all. One of the things that, that, that Vogue had done for me was that they designed the very first ever e-commerce site in Britain, which they donated to me, basically. SophiaSwire.com at the time, with, with all those supermodels on it, was the first e-commerce site in London, in Britain, and, you know, and I wasn't, I didn't have an investor. It was me on my own, basically. If I, if I knew then what I know now, I, I wouldn't probably have made the same life choices, honestly, because I was sitting on a gold mine. I just didn't Literally, realize it. Literally, or a diamond mine, or anyway. A pashmina, gold, a pashmina gold mine, you know. Anyway, it's a, it's a, it, the bus uh, is a We bus. all have those experiences. <laughs> But, but I understood about e-commerce and, and I also recognised um, that when the foreign troops eventually did withdraw, that having multiple sort of foreign aid workers doing the work for them basically wasn't going to happen for much longer. And so I wanted to sort of give them the tools to become independent and to be able to participate in the 20, 21st century economy. And so we teamed up with a Canadian Indian company and we co created these solar-powered, SIM card-enabled tablet computers that were preloaded with apps that were relevant to artisans and so female before the time. I was actually at your launch in London for them. At the House of Lords. Oh, I didn't go to that one. I went to some, one in a private apartment in Kensington that was lots of important people at. And uh, when you first started talking about it, it was so before its time for the UK or anywhere in the world, never mind out in the mountains of, of Afghanistan. They were extraordinary tablets, really before anything. Yeah, this was 2013. 2013 and we, we got a small grant from the US, from the Canadian Foreign Ministry to run a pilot. So we ran the first ever digital literacy pilot in Afghanistan, which was a huge success. And I then took it to the US Department of Defense and others and said, um, really, this is a game changer. You guys ought to do something here. And General Sir David Richards wrote, wrote a letter of, an, of a personal letter saying this is absolutely fantastic and I give it my full support and this is exactly what Britain should be doing and the, the allies should be doing and so on. But it, it was so early that I think some of the elderly statesmen of the time didn't really understand it. And also they were quite nervous about creating armies of cyber t- terrorists so they were too nervous to really back it at the time now of course it's all the rage in fact we're revisiting it right now in a very big way in both pakistan and afghanistan anyway so 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 then my brother hugo was made a foreign minister around that time i think he was 20 i don't remember when around 2013-2014 he was made a minister under david cameron and um i was warned that i was a sort of tasty morsel for kidnap you know for the criminal criminals of the world and that I should probably come back and, and, and do something more sensible. So my brother really encouraged me to go for politics. And so I ran in the European elections in 2014. Did you? I missed yeah. that one as well. <laughs> and that I did it partly to get over my white knuckle fear of public speaking because, you know, so many women are absolutely held back, I believe, by oh, their fear. So of eloquent at public speaking. But anyway, whatever training you got there obviously worked. 
But the last thing I could see you doing is being a bureaucrat in Brussels, my God. So, so I met a number of the MEPs in Brussels and, and, and they said, what earth do you want to become an MEP for? That you know, you, boring yeah. job ever, <laughs> apart from eating lots of mussels and pastries. Well, I just, I just, I wanted to, I wanted to find a way to continue to have impact in the world, but also to try and keep my family happy and, and have a sort of a solid income and a pension. And my family <laughs> are very worried that I don't have a pension. And so, but at the time, I, I it, this was around the time that Nigel Farage was winkling That's his way. Busy, yes. Yeah. And, and I saw a lurch to the right in the Conservative Party, and I didn't feel terribly aligned with, with the emerging populism that I saw happening. So, I thought this is not for me. And so I slowly extricated myself from that and started doing advising tech companies and startups and venture capital funds on their ESG impact side. Because I guess now I've got a, like a, well, now it's 30 year track record. At the time, it was more than 23 years track record in actual hands on, tangible impact, real impact, not greenwashing, not pinkwashing. So they, they brought me in. I took on some advisory roles. And, and then, and then I started considering going back into finance. I was watching with interest the growing ESG, um, CSR sector and thinking that maybe, you know, that would be something I could do. And then when the Me Too movement broke back in, must be 2018, was it? Then all this, all, all the reports and the statistics started coming out around lack of access to finance for female founders like me, basically. And I had actually gone into the, into the city at one point saying, let's get this show on the road properly. And I'd had male, very nice, very nice, handsome male investors say, shouldn't you be thinking about getting married? You know, your, your time's up, girl. But Jedi, so you started working towards what you have now created and named as Jedi, I guess, from about then. And Jedi stands for what? It stands for Gender Equity Diversity Investments. And and it was really born as a result of, you know, reading around the subject matter and, and understanding that there was a role to play for someone who, who had been a company operator and had set up tons of businesses and had a, I guess, firm foundation in finance and investing and a global network. Because what I read was that females flourish not only when they're given checks and women are over-mentored and underfunded, but also when they have the support of, of the network effect, which after all men have had, the old boys network, you know, they, they've had that since time immemorial. But women historically have been, have not always wanted to work with each other and wanted to support one another. And I think that is changing. It's definitely changing. It was women that made it in a man's world felt that they weren't really there to help other women up the ladder. And that's old school, but it's how it was up till say, let's, maybe 10 years ago, when women suddenly woke up that if they came together, and I was always part of those early networks, not necessarily financial networks, but just business women networks, if we came together, we can do so much more than we can on our own, and we can support and understand and collaborate in so many ways, which is what you've done with Jedi. So Jedi is, explain what it exactly what it is then. Okay, so so basically, all these female entrepreneurs started reaching out to me on LinkedIn and Instagram and Twitter and so on. I, I guess I was speaking at that point on various conferences, including South by Southwest and so on, about what happens when you invest in a woman as opposed to a man. You know, what happens if you if you educate a girl? What happens if you invest in a business as opposed to investing in a male's business? Based on my own experience and obviously reading all these reports. And so female founders identified me as somebody that should be helping them. So they started writing to me saying, you know, will you join my board? Will you introduce me to investors? Will you invest in my company? 
And so it was really a response to, to, to that that I started looking into whether or not someone with my track record even had the chops to set up a venture capital fund. And I, I've learned so much in the last couple of years about how challenging it is for people, for anyone to set up a venture capital fund. But particularly if you don't have a you know 20 year or even 15 year track record in venture capital with all of the traditional things that that LPs, limited partners or investors look for, which is that you you know you've you've invested in 20 deals, you've had maybe five exits, you've led half of those or whatever it is, those are the sort of boxes that, that have traditionally needed to be ticked, which which is why it, the problem is systemic because more than 97% of founding partners in VCs all over the world are white are white guys. And um, only 11% of decision makers in private equity and venture capital groups around the world are females. In other words, they sit on the investment committee. And when women are on those in those positions, they are more than twice as likely to invest in other women. Otherwise, you we all suffer from biases, even I do at this old age, you know, with all of this experience. And we are consciously or unconsciously drawn to and trust in and have confidence in people who look and sound like us or people who we're very familiar with. So inevitably, if, if you're going to have privileged old white guys, largely Oxbridge and, and um, Ivy League, you know, in control of 98% of the money in the world, then it's going to be hard to create change. And, and many of those old dudes regard what I'm doing as philanthropy. They don't understand that it's actually impact investment. Well, it's not even, I mean, it doesn't even have to be impact investment. It's, it's the greatest overlooked investment opportunity on the planet today. There's more than a trillion dollars worth of money to be made by backing ambitious female founders. Obviously, not all female founders are going to be capable of building a unicorn billion dollar business, but a large number are capable and are just being, you know, underfunded and aren't being properly supported. So really, Jedi was formed to fill this need. And there are other female-founded funds now that have been popping up. There's more, more than 200, I think maybe even 280. They're, they're generally much smaller. They're like $10, $15 million. They're generally in the US, although there are others in Europe, Germany, the UK, and elsewhere. But the majority of them are in the US. And the majority of them are focused, you know, because they're early stage, so they tend to be focused in their own backyard. But because over the course of a lifetime, I've built an extraordinary network of powerful, mainly women, as you as rightly say, and when women work together, we can genuinely move mountains. You know, I decided that, that our, our investment strategy would be a little bit more global. So we're looking at, at we're looking at aiming to raise a $150 million fund, and probably a third of that will be deployed in, in MENA, in the Middle East and now Saudi. I just got back from Saudi. It never occurred to me that Saudi would be a place where we could invest. But they have the extraordinary, f- isn't it? Saudi's really opening up. It, they have the fastest rate of growth for female entrepreneurship in the world. For women, it's it, it's really transforming at the rate of the speed of light. And then approximately a third will probably be invested in North America and a third in, in Northern Europe. And that, that does include the UK for me, whatever Nigel Farage beliefs. So this has been keeping you extremely busy. You've been working on it uh, intensely for, as you say, since what, 2018. Uh, I've come in and out of different conversations you've been having with these all these extraordinary women. You all seem to live your life on aeroplanes. I see these constant messages on WhatsApp saying, who's in Dubai next week? Let's meet for tea. Who's going to be? And of course, you spoke at COP26. You did a fantastic speech there, which I saw recorded about how the future of a safe, sustainable world is in the hands of women and investing in women, which was brilliant. And then, of course, you had got out of 
all the work you were doing with Future Brilliance at, at the beginning because you were so busy with Jedi. And then, of course, we had this huge explosion in Afghanistan and you got pulled back into it. So do you want to explain how what happened yes, to I, I, you were there? Again? I will. And actually, I'm actually going to shift myself to show you this extraordinary structure behind me, which, which maybe some of your viewers will have been wondering, what is that beautiful swirling object behind that? There is an extraordinary swirling gold mesh a pattern that is behind Sophia that somehow she's got set up on her Zoom. Those who watch this later on our YouTube channel will see what I'm talking about. For those who are listening, you won't know. But tell me about what is that pattern behind you? Okay, so so that is the Galaxia Temple at the Burning Man uh, event, which takes place every August, September, yeah. And that year, I decided to try and get my head out of Afghanistan because it's all consuming, you know. Once you get, once you fall in love with Afghanistan, it possesses you. And so I decided I was going to take some time out, make a little film to get my head sort of focused into something else. And the film was going to be about the art and artists of Burning Man, because I still have an abiding passion for for the history of art. And I was particularly drawn to this incredible architect, Arthur Mamumani, who who designed this extraordinary building, which was designed by a computer algorithm. It's the first building in history to be designed by AI and then interpreted in, in natural materials. So it was built in wood, wood in the desert. In, we built it in a, about, I think it was like something like six weeks or, or less. It was put together in, in, in the desert in, in uh, Nevada. And I produced a documentary called Art on Fire about this piece and, and the, the temple builders and then all the other art that year. And uh, the, the point, the reason that I'm telling you this is because the, the, the temple is all about catharsis and transformation. So it's also about grieving and letting go. And every year people put photographs and, and love letters and things and people and isms that they want to let go of. Or, 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 and uh, I wanted to let go of Afghanistan. So I carved into one of those wooden petals, as the architect used to call them, RIP Afghanistan, rest in peace Afghanistan, because I decided I, I had to cut that umbilical cord. We're talking 2018 here. And then we set fire to the temple because that's what you do every year and and your hopes and your dreams and your prayers go up it's a little bit like the buddhist tradition yes we and do so a little I, of I, that I, here but we don't build a big temple to do it we just put it in the back garden at the seed house oh, <laughs> well i look for i'm going to come and do that with you so so basically i felt that i felt i could now move on i felt i was free to move on and then yes i went full on into building a network building the community and then of course covid hit so i wasn't able to launch the fund when i had originally intended but really built the community and and over the course of the last couple of years we've crowdsourced more than 600 astonishingly talented female founders with deals that are investable so We've really been putting the foundations in, and and we're now we're now launched. We launched officially at COP26, as you rightly said, in Glasgow, and just before Christmas. But you're right. I mean, so I'd let go of Afghanistan, and then in August we started getting. I started getting emails from from our female trainees and and a girl who our project manager in Kabul through Future Brilliance. We'd still been doing you know training, and and we'd helped these Afghans create a cooperative called Ayenda, which means future in the local language diary, and and. You know, they've been producing all this beautiful lapis jewelry and turquoise jewelry, and, and we've been assisting them in building international markets, but in a very much more sort of low key way for the previous five years. And then these girls had reached out and said, basically, said, if you don't get us out of here, we're gonna we're gonna top ourselves, you know. And you know, we're one of three unmarried women in our family, and the Taliban have told us that they're going to take one of us in marriage, and I'm the older older sister, and that's me. 
And so if you don't get me out of here, it's curtains. And so I couldn't sit on the sidelines and, and do nothing. I, I had to step in. And so I, I, I wrote to, you probably saw, I wrote to the WhatsApp group, the Jedi WhatsApp group, because that's how we communicate, of course. And I said, who, which of you wants to do something that has immediate tangible social impact in, in helping Afghan women? And two thirds of the Jedi VC group said, yes, please, stuck their hands up. And so we created the Jedi Task Force for Future Brilliance. Yes, at this point, we must have to say, we were, it was building up to the foreign troops, the Americans and the English and others leaving Afghanistan. The Taliban were taking on more and more territories. So obviously, we were all aware of the horror that was waiting for women and girls and that was getting nearer and nearer in Afghanistan. So sorry to interrupt you, just wanted to put the context. So this was early August. Yeah, yes. I mean, it all happened very, very quickly. Yes. Um, and and, and the, the, the day that we started getting those sort of desperate messages was the day Kabul, or the day, the week that, that Kabul fell to the Taliban. Because the foot soldiers had been promised girls, basically. They hadn't been paid for years. They'd all been promised young brides. So they were, you know, rampaging around the place looking for women young virgins and uh, and they thought it was their right and um, so we had to do something and so with this amazing group of jedi you know, network jedi warriors and a, a few of my future brilliance folk and that my trustees for future brilliance and and a few of their mates as well and basically collaboratively we raised about half a million dollars in a couple of weeks and we contracted a charter we chartered a plane my co-founder Phil Walker, who's a, an amazing anti-corruption lawyer who worked on the Kabul bank crisis in Afghanistan. He's, I, I dragged him back back into the... I, I got everyone really focused on this and, and it's been exhausting and all-consuming, to be honest with you, for all of us. But uh, he's done an amazing job as well. And um, and Weizkais is my co-founder of Future Brilliance UK, and then we have and and then we've got this incredible Afghan team. That's what's really made the difference. You know, w- w- the former executive director of the Ministry of Mines and Petroleum, who was my boss back in 2012, 2013, when I was working with the World Bank at the Ministry of Mines. He is now our chief executive officer. I I brought him in because I realised I needed to remain focused on Jedi. And that I would never be able to do both. I mean, it was just too much, too much at stake. So he now is heading a team of 13 paid Afghan nationals and 50 Afghan national volunteers who are reporting to the 13 paid Afghans. So we actually have a small army now. We've and got where an are army. they all based? Are they all over or? They're, they're between Afghanistan and Pakistan. So we have 63 troops on the ground who are dealing with multiple different things, including an orphanage. We were approached in. October by a man who told me that the money for this orphanage in the north of Afghanistan had, had ended in August and these kids had gone out onto the streets and they'd been raped by Taliban foot soldiers in return for bread. And it was such a desperate, desperate, desperate story that I turned to our board of trustees and I said, can we please do something about it? And initially it was, we can't afford to, and which because we can't actually afford to, you know, you can't, we were, we were running on purely volunteer basis on through GoFundMe with people donating $10, $100, $50, $15. So we can't, you, you can't save the whole of Afghanistan. You can't save 43 million people. But anyway, this particular project stole our hearts. So we took, I, I haven't 
talked about it at all in the WhatsApp group for Future Brilliance because I'm very nervous that, you know, unless we raise a lot more money, I, I, it's not clear how we can sustain that support, to be honest with you, which is why I flew to Saudi Arabia and elsewhere because this is life and death. And, you know, it's, it's hard. You, you were asking earlier, how do you balance your life between your for-profit interest and your not-for-profit interest? And that's always been a big struggle because my heart and soul belong in, in pure impact and my head and, and my soul, I guess, also belong in impact, in, in for-profit impact. So, but it's hard. And, and the answer is, it's partly responsive. So like, you know, we, we, had a, we had a big crisis a few days ago at the guest house in Afghanistan and in Islamabad, the guest house. Sorry, in Islamabad, the guest yeah. house in, in Islamabad. We had a problem with with a woman who was had been thoroughly abused. She was a victim of domestic abuse and was being forced to go back to Afghanistan by by her in laws. And and I intervened, but I mean that everything flew out of the window that day. And you know, we were on the. I was on the telephone all day, making sure that she understood that she would be safe if she if she stayed with us, and and that going back was not an option. Because she would have gone back to a certain death, basically. And so, anyway, so it's a heavy burden to carry. And it's been utterly exhausting and utterly energizing. So, you've got this halfway house in Islamabad in Pakistan where a lot of, you've helped a lot of people. You, the organization Future Brilliance has helped a lot of people get over the borders now waiting for visas. I know because through you, I'm mentoring one of the young women there. And so they're stuck there with their families, hopefully waiting for visas, hopefully keeping going with skills. The young woman that I work with, Bazira, her father was a general, was killed by the Taliban. She's out there with her siblings and her mother waiting to go to the States. It's a heartbreaking situation. And there is only so much funding that can go towards these situations, as we were talking about before. So that's a constant hungry bird, baby bird waiting for the mum to come with the food. That's right. And and that's one of the reasons I flew to Saudi Arabia about a month ago to start to speak to some of the foundations and trust there, because obviously they have a vested interest in stability in the region. And, and we're registering Future Brilliance as a Pakistan NGO as well now in order to be able to deliver impact projects in Pakistan. We were talking earlier about the digital literacy project. So we are working with the KPK government, which is the former Northwest Rajiv province, to develop a $40 million plus dollar digital literacy to jobs in Silicon Valley. And we hope to be able to replicate that on both sides of the border. And then if we're allowed at the humanitarian city, which is the camp in Abu Dhabi, where they have 12,000 Afghans with nothing to do twiddling their thumbs. So, and that's all, you know, that'll all be delivered through EdTech and these remote learning platforms that are popping up everywhere, largely founded by women. And many of those companies are investable so that's where there's a connection between Jedi and Future Brilliance that we may actually end up investing in some of the companies where products and services are deployed to solve age-old problems using 21st century solutions. Brilliant. Brilliant. Even I can see from my outside situation looking in, that makes the most perfect sense. And because you're super, super smart, you know which of the products and which of the projects will, in fact, help people and make money at the same time. Which is what I get. I I guess most women investors would love to see. They're not looking to put money into weapons or something unhealthy. They want to invest, and of course, many of them, all of them, would like to make money out of it. But they want to do it in a way which is going to help others. That seems to me to be a sort of pretty general uh, feeling about female investment. 
It's true of investors and it's female investors. It's also true of female founders. Female founders, because we're women, tend to care more about people and planet. Obviously, there are wonderful male founders having fantastic impact in the sustainability space as well. But but on the whole, as a generalization, if you're a female founder, you're more likely to take care of the mental health and well-being of your of your employees. You're more likely to have a business that is focusing on solving one of the global goals, ed tech and, and mental health and these med tech and femtech, obviously, these areas that are heavily populated by talented, ambitious female founders. And there are very few women in the defense industry, I'm happy to say. And so you're right. And, and these sustainable businesses in the 21st century economy, because their customers are Gen Z and Gen Z customers demand sustainable products, are the ones that are proving to be growing very fast and also will be more resistant and robust in, in times of economic downturn. They're more sustainable. When women-led businesses are invested, they return more on capital and they also exit faster. So what's not to love? Why, why do they exit faster, do you think? Because they're moving on to the next project or...? No, they exit faster because meaning that, that any, any company that is invested in by a private equity group or a venture capital group, the, the plan is to turn it into a multi-million dollar company, ideally a unicorn, and then to sell it. That's how, how the investors get their money out. So if you exit faster, it means you, you can make hopefully more money and get out, get out faster, which is what investors want to do. But in, to answer your question in a more detailed way, in a more nuanced way, the, reasons that, the reason that female founded businesses exit faster is because we lack the confidence that men have to, again, a big generalization, but we lack the hooch uh, that men have. And so a man might write an idea on the back of an envelope and go in and demand, you know, $5 million. And a woman will wait and she's got a, a minimum viable product, a proven, you know, revenue of a year and this and that. And, you know, and then she says, I'm, I am unworthy, but maybe, you know, would you ever consider? And then a man would ask the double the amount of money. So, so women come to market later and, and it may be partly because of that, that they exit faster because they come to market with a more mature product. Where next? That's the thing. I mean, geographically, I think you're going to Dubai next, but apart from where you're physically going, where next for you? Because it's Afghanistan is in your blood. You, you love the people. They are beautiful people and you care too much about helping the people in this world that need help to disappear totally back into the cities. That's 100% sure. Which, which is why coming up with venture capital strategy that reflects everything I, I personally believe in is the perfect solution. So, so the investment strategy of this fund will be you know, focused on education. So the three sustainable development goals that we're really going to be focused on are um, quality education, which has been my track record now for more than 30 years, good health and well-being, another of the sustainable development goals, because you know, I've witnessed as a result of living and working in war zones, the effect of trauma on re- recycling violence. And I believe that the provision of mental health is not only a hugely impactful and important thing to be doing, but also highly profitable because, you know, more and more young people need mental health support and more and more young people don't want to leave their bedrooms. I'm working on that over here at the moment with, with young English people in the Southwest. Which is fantastic. Yeah. So so online therapy, and there are all these incredibly exciting female-founded businesses that are popping up in this space in the US, in the UK, in, in uh, Abu Dhabi as well, 
companies that have approached us for funding. So, so for me, it hits the sweet spot of basically being able to deploy capital to companies that are well-run, highly ambitious, and hitting it out of the ballpark in areas that I want to continue to have impact in my life, which is addiction. You remember when I, I told you when I left Chitral, I set up a battle against narcotics, which was all about establishing rehab and detox and mental health and then education and then circular economy. So fashion with impact. Like when I had my fashion bi- uh, fashionina business, I gave 10% to fund all the, the Afghan schools. So we'll, we'll, we'll be looking at some of the sustainable, you know, circular economy type models as well. And, and so I'm hoping that my passion for impact and my, my passion for a need to, to build a sustainable livelihood for others and also for myself will, will come together in Jeddah. Yes, I'm sure it will. And it, it is the future and you are the future. And as much as I didn't see you getting involved in politics, sitting alongside Nigel Farage in, in Brussels, I do see that you have an enormous role to play on the true political scale, what global stage. There's no question about it. You're already there. You are so inspiring for so many people. I'm very grateful to have had this time with you. And like I say, I can I so see this movie of this character, this beautiful blonde, long-haired blonde woman that you are, but playing you out there on the mountains of wherever, changing lives. I see it happening. Maybe I should produce that movie. Maybe that's what I should do. Anyway, it has been an absolute pleasure. I'm hoping that all the people that will listen to this very important podcast will get involved. Um, we will be giving information on how they can support through GoFundMe, Future Brilliance and all the projects that you're doing there. And if you are a woman who has an incredible idea for a business and looking for investment, then we can also put you in touch with Jedi, but make sure that you got your project really well thought through. And I just watch you with my mouth open. I just really do. And I hope you will come for a visit soon and spend some time. But I know that you'll be like whizzing in, whizzing out off to some other extraordinary event. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much. You are amazing, amazing. You are certainly one of my biggest heroes. Well, I have to say it, it, it's, a, it's entirely mutual, Lynn. You know, from the moment that we met, you, you are such a standard bearer for powerful, light-bearing women in the world. You are an absolute inspiration and, and, and an inspiration with a, with a tender heart. And I should add that very early on, you approached us and asked if you could carry Ayenda Jewelry, the Afghan Jewelry Cooperative line in your shop in Somerset, which you did. And you came and did a talk and you talked about it and how it was made. We had a, it was one of the very first things we did before pandemic and we shut down for a while. It was one of the first things we did and people then were so thrilled to hear your story and meet you and look at the jewelry and buy the jewelry actually so thank you for your support and thank you for your love and and thank you for being who you are and you know i love your sense of humor too it's you're just amazing thank you the exercise i would like to suggest to go with this powerful conversation with sophia is to look at the website for future brilliance and see what they are doing. They are helping families, women and girls from Afghanistan to create new lives for themselves. And there is so much you can do to support the campaigns. You can donate to their GoFundMe page or share with your networks on social media. Their website is futurebrilliance.net and all the details will be alongside this podcast for you to click onto. Do help them, they're doing phenomenal work. Thank you so much for listening to Frankly Speaking with Lynn Franks and friends and taking part. Remember, we do try and put up a new episode every two or at the most three weeks with another extraordinary woman in my life. 
and we do hope you'll come back and join us again. If you like what you hear and want to learn more practical methods to help you plant the seeds in your own empowerment journey, then please subscribe to this podcast, rate and review it. Also, make sure to join our Seed Network if you haven't already. And together with thousands of like-minded women, you can make friends, promote your business, create community initiatives and share your stories. Visit seednetwork.com to find out more. Until then, see you next time.